Um, over the summer, we have had a, kind of a fun series, uh, fun um, because it's a different way of thinking about and talking about the idea of salvation. Uh, and we've looked at all different manner of it, but I just want to start out maybe even with a little dialogue and simply ask the question, what words, kind of a word association, what words come to mind when you hear the idea of salvation? Not rhetorical. Redemption. Rescue, like it. Free. Yeah, some kind of freedom that you experience. Salvation. Forgiveness, like that. Transformation. Mm, ideally. That's what we're going for, yes. But something quantifiably changes. There's a salvation. Once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We, we want to see something transformed. Hope, yeah. That, that this world isn't an end in of itself. That there's something uh, a greater work, a greater hope that we can rely on, not just be at the mercy of the whims and circumstances uh, of, of this life. Well, what would be the opposite? What would be the antonym, if you will, of the word salvation? Condemnation. Condemnation, yeah. Bound. Say that? Bound. Bound, yeah. Kind of the opposite of free, yeah. Lost. Lost. There's lots of words that you can come up with. Addicted, bankrupt, financially or otherwise. There is this sense that we get that salvation is supposed to produce, but it's also important to consider what are the, implica- what, what are the things that would keep us from, from that kind of deliverance. Today, I wanna talk about salvation as present, as daily. Because if you're like me, you grew up with probably an overemphasis on salvation being the thing that happens there and then, like when you die. That salvation in heaven was something that was reserved for those who've moved on to glory. (laughs) But I would like to contend that Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of heaven as a present reality. And as people living in a very broken world, we can actually experience heaven on earth. And there is this salvation experience that isn't just a one-time decision where we pray some prayer, but the working out of our salvation that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That there is something daily, that there is something present about growing or figuring out or discovering our salvation. So you might come to Christ and immediately experience a kind of hope, but there's still a process of growing in freedom. Your financial debt didn't get canceled because you found Jesus. Your addictions didn't, or vices, didn't get eliminated just because you found Jesus. So there is this second work, if you will, this continual work of grace that, that, that we can pursue even after we, quote unquote, meet Jesus for the first time. Now, let me just say this. Some of you have been super gracious with me. Uh, <clears throat> this has been a real challenging week. I, I've had words with my parents. Um, last weekend was our son's last time at worship with us, and now he lives a couple of hours away, and his address will never be ours again. 
And that felt really permanent to me. I can't not let my mind go to this really sad place. I think about him constantly. I pray for him constantly. He doesn't have really people to go eat meals with, and he doesn't have a community. And yet I've discovered this really beautiful person that I would love, love, love to be with. And so even though we have prepared for 18 years to send him off, and this is a really great, healthy thing, it doesn't make it necessarily any easier. And so I find myself calling my parents going, you guys never told me it would be this hard. You guys never even made me aware that you were struggling when I left and I was the youngest to leave. So it was clearly quiet after I left. And they're like, well, you know, and I was just absorbed in a, I don't have one friend and this is really hard and everything's really new and never even thought that this was hard on my parents except now I'm going through that. And here's what I'd say. My heart feels so alive. I have this ability right now where it feels so much joy and gratitude and at the same time loss and sadness and yet I feel completely alive because my heart is so sensitive, so sensitized that I feel like I get these kind of prompts from the Lord and, and I just feel led to pray. I feel led to, to, to help in some way. I feel led to initiate. Um, and, and, and I think that's what it means when we work out our salvation because we, we kind of move past the levels, uh, maybe even the calluses, if you will, uh, for greater levels of intimacy, greater levels of sensitivity, greater levels of responsiveness to what the Spirit of God is saying and doing. And so while this is a really challenging life, I feel so alive, totally fragile, kind of vulnerable, and yet I feel like God is meeting us in some really special ways. Um, do you ever go through times where you go, oh my gosh, I would never want to go through that again? But I'm glad I did. And I, I think that's one of these seasons that God's going to do something in my son. Because guess what? This is an ideal situation. He didn't want to leave us any more than we wanted to see him go. Perfect. I guess we should. Salvation as daily salvation as present and I feel like my heart has been laid bare and God is meeting me in some really personal ways even by the texts the hugs the emails the inquiries that I'm getting even this afternoon by oh my gosh this must have been such a hard week for you why yes I'll take that as the voice of God going I'm with you I want to look at a story and, but before I do, uh, and the story is a very familiar one, it's the story of Zacchaeus. You know the story, if you grew up in Sunday school, Zacchaeus was a? A wee little man was he, and he was stout, and he was tall. No, he had to climb up in the? For the Lord he wanted to see. Okay, good, you had the same flannel graphs in Sunday school classes that I might have had. Okay, but before we get there, there's so much layers that I want to peel back and give you a glimpse over what scripture uh, that Jesus was talking about and why this was such a revolutionary story about what happened with Zacchaeus. So before we get into the New Testament, which comes in Luke 19, I want you to turn with me to some really almost boring minutia of daily living that God outlined in 
the scriptures that Jesus taught. Now, when I say the scriptures that Jesus taught, the New Testament wasn't written. So what was Jesus teaching? He was teaching largely out of the Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus would have also referenced the law and the prophets, things like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and so on and so forth. And then he would have been referencing some of the, the, um, <clears throat> the, the poetry uh, out of the Psalms. But in the Torah are 613 commands, which is a terrible word because commands feel almost legislative. And that was not the case when God gave these commands. What he was trying to do was give you a kind of guideline, a kind of recipe for how to live in harmony with one another, harmony with God, harmony with our environment. There was a way to live um, so that we can live freely, so that we can live unencumbered, that we can live not with vices, but with joy, not with chronic depression, but with freedom. There was this kind of outline that, that God was wanting to, um, for us to experience. And so um, you might want to jot some notes down. I have some on the bulletin here that you might want to just pick up some things because I'm going to make some observations. I have to be honest, some of this stuff is really, really, really dry. And if you read it on your own, you'd be like, okay, no goosebumps here, no divine inspiration here. So let me help kind of contextualize it because I think it could be really meaningful. I want to look at Leviticus uh, 25, which no dynamic preacher ever starts with Leviticus, uh, and then go to Leviticus 19. Um, maybe another way you can follow along with a more detailed outline is if you have downloaded our app, I put more detail. You can't really fill stuff in uh, in our message notes, but it gives you a lot more content than what is included simply on the bulletin handout. But uh, Leviticus 25 has some really interesting things to say about, get this, salvation for daily living. This is not just about going to heaven when you die. This is experience heaven on earth. This is experiencing kind of a, a growing momentum, a, 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 an increase in your gait, spiritually speaking, so that while you're living on earth, you can have the abundant life. And so this is what you get out of the scriptures. Leviticus uh, 25, um, start the, and, and I'm just going to skip around. So if you have your, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, uh, it's a lot of passages, so I don't want to read all of it all, but it talks about the Sabbath year. Now you've heard about the Sabbath day, which most of us are really rotten at actually keeping. Some of you have even heard the word sabbatical, and this is where the origin of a sabbatical comes from. So it says uh, in, in verse two, the Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, what's the land he's referring to? Promised, Promised land, capital L. Uh, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, and the land itself must be, observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, um, <clears throat> sow your fields, and, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a, a, a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your, unintended, uh, of your unintended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. 
Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant, your maidservant, for the hired worker and the temporary resident who lives among you, as well as your livestock and all the wild animals in the land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. What is he talking about? Why is that part of a plan for salvation? Except that he's talking about how to practice renewal, how to not like compromise on all of your margins, how to have a sustainable pace of life, how to have a growing trust that I don't have to work seven days a week because I can't trust you, God, if all of these emails are ever going to get answered. So I got to keep pulling out my laptop at night after the kids go to bed. I've got to get up early. I've got to be online all the time. And God's going, give it a rest. Yield as an act of faith if not disciplined, to say, I trust you. It's the same thing that we do when we tithe unto the Lord, a systematic percentage of regular giving because we want to say, God, I trust you, even though my margins feel thin. We can say that emotionally, we can say that spiritually, we can say that financially, we want to yield. So when he starts outlining all this stuff, he's saying, you know what, you're going to have some really fertile land, and you could... You could keep planting for seven years straight, but I want you to trust me. Let the, let the land replenish itself. You'll still be able to eat. You might not get as far ahead in terms of your growing net worth, but trust me, I'll provide. And so this is all about how to practice renewal, how to care for creation. It's how to, and this would be what I'd ask you, how do we trust God as the capital S source? Because me, I'm the lowercase s source. I've got an education. I've got a strong back. I've got a good network. I've got good interpersonal skills. Oh, I can make things happen. And God's going, yeah, but that's all rooted in, 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 in me. Do we trust? Can we yield? And so this is what he's talking about. Provision for everyone because God owns it all. Let's read on. Verse 14 through 17. This gets kind of interesting. Um, once you, and again, we're going to end up in Zacchaeus, and I'm hopefully going to connect some of these dots, but he says, if you sell your land to one of your countrymen or buy it from any from him, um, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your countrymen on the basis of the number of years since Jubilee. And he is to sell the land on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. And when the years are many, you are to increase the price. And when the years are few, you're supposed to decrease the price because what he is really selling you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. What is he saying? He's saying that just because you've been good in business, just because it's been profitable, don't think that you've actually authored this. Don't think that you're so shrewd, so smart, that somehow you can provide for yourself. It all comes from me. Now, the year of Jubilee was supposed to be every seven years we have a reset where it's amnesty, and you're like, Oh, hell no. Those people didn't work for that. And he's like, no, really. We're not going to live with hell on earth. What's hell on earth? Debt. Bondage. And he's like, no, 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 no. The world that God intended is supposed to be heaven on earth. So when you are looking at this land and not giving it a chance to replenish, when you are holding someone else hostage because they're in a vulnerable place and you're gouging 
with your price? He's like, no, don't play that game. And so he was kind of marking it off based on every seven years that there would be a clean slate. Even though someone had failed in business, and maybe, maybe, and this is hard for us Americans, someone had been irresponsible with their finances. Seven years, they get to learn a hard lesson, um, but then get to start over. What? See, I've got to be honest. Sometimes the unfairness of grace bothers me. You mean God's gracious and so someone who doesn't deserve it? You mean someone who's been irresponsible and God wants to like even the playing field again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because hell on earth is overrated and that's not what God intended. And so uh, we see this kind of compassionate capitalism. There is a chance to capitalize on someone's vulnerability, on someone's need. And he's like, no, no, we don't play that game. There is a way to live in harmony with each other. There is a way to grow and abundantly, but not at someone else's expense. So this is all about how to do real estate, how to do business, how to treat customers, how to host clients. This is really super relevant when you you know, kind of take it out of an agricultural society. Now, verse 23, listen to what he says in this one verse. He says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. What is he saying? See, the deliverance of all of Israel, the people of God, was to the promised land. So the promised land was their inheritance. This was part of their identity. So when you are trying to like broker something, when you're trying to get ahead, when you're trying to survive, and somehow you lost part of the land, you are losing part of your identity as the people of God. Because they had been delivered from slavery, right? Abraham was sent to the promised land. There was a famine. He ends up in Egypt. 400 years later, they're in bondage, they're in captivity. He's like, okay, let's pick up the story again. Go to the land I'm sending you to. And so that was the big journey that took them 40 years. But look at it. I know I'm giving you the land, but I'm still the owner. You're my tenant. I know you think you own it. It's sort of like, yes, this is the car I drive, but the bank really owns it. That's what God's saying. Don't forget that I... I am the Lord your God. Super important to remember, lest we feel A, entitled, B, like we had something to do to deserve it. And God's going, there's a better way to be human. There's a better better world that I intended. So a couple more passages that I just want to highlight because it's how to do business and be in community. So verse 25 says, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, uh, he he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it. He is to determine the value of the number of years he sold and refund the balance to the man who sold it. Verse 28. But if he does not acquire the means to repay it, what he sold will remain in possession of the buyer until what? The year of Jubilee. Yeah, amnesty. That thing called grace. It will be returned to the to the jubilee, uh, in the jubilee, and he can go back to his property. This is all about how to do business and be in community. And it's not that God hates wealth. Understand this, and it's hard and countercultural. What God hates most of all is the gap. 
getting richer while others are getting poorer. That's what grieves the heart of God. And you're like, oh my God, I came today and Dave was talking socialism. I'm talking compassionate capitalism because God did not want to legislate your heart and require you to act a certain way. But in loving obedience and faithfulness, saying it's all from you, it's all a gift. There's a way for us to walk in abundance, to walk in freedom, but to walk in a way that's not at someone else's expense. Now it's weird, I've wondered why I have not been invited to speak at anyone's MBA program, because this doesn't actually go well in most business circles, but this is God's intention for how do we live in harmony. So uh, verse 39 through 40 says, uh, let's see, um, uh, if one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, um, <clears throat> do not make, make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released and he will go back to his own clan and to the property of his forefathers because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them, Ruth but fear the Lord your God. In other words, he's saying you have every legal right to do with them as you please, but you are my own. Don't forget that you once were a slave in Egypt. Don't forget who the source of all this. You have the legal right to do whatever you want, but let it be a testimony of how you treat people under your obligation, under your care, under your payroll. Let how you do business. So when you act like a complete mean person to a wait staff, what is the testimony that is being communicated? What testimony do we leave by how much we or don't leave a tip? What is it that when people do who come as vendors, it's, oh, this is their job, this is what they're supposed to do. Or what is it they get from us, whether they be in sales or, or whatever. And, and what I'm saying is, according to scripture, there is a way that we conduct ourselves, live our lives, not because we want to necessarily just a good reputation. We are light. And he says, there's a way to live in harmony. So Torah is all about things like the minutia, of daily living. And Torah is all about crops and it's about land and it's about debts and it's about paychecks and it's about saving and interest and generosity and compassion. It's all of these things that we're like, what does this have to do with anything? Let me just read you one other passage, Leviticus 19. Uh, um, shed some light where it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't go to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. The gleanings were once you went through it a second time, there was still good fruit left. I remember being 18 years old and going out to outside of DC in Maryland. They're like, we're going to go gleaning. I said, what's gleaning? And they're like, they've already harvested, but there's a lot of produce left on the vine. So we're going to go back and we were working as part of some inner city soup kitchens and stuff like that. But these farmers had said, We've harvested, but we didn't go through it a second time. Come and get it. Really? And then I would start reading this, and I was like, oh, that's where they got it from. But listen to what he says. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for who? The poor. The foreigner. Let me clarify. The illegal immigrant who came here and, and is probably one of the most vulnerable living among you. 
I am the Lord your God. In other words, there's an audience here. It's not because I'm a do-gooder. It's not because, well, I, I, I couldn't muster up or I did muster up enough compassion today. He's like, no, no, no. This is about you and me being in a love relationship. Uh, in other words, maximizing profits isn't your ultimate concern. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't hold back wages of a hired worker overnight. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear the Lord. Uh, fear your God, I am the Lord. Don't pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great or the rich, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't go about spreading slander among your people. Do not, uh, do, do not do anything that endangers a neighbor's life. I am the Lord. He's getting really particular about how to conduct ourselves. And I'm thinking, if we learn this in middle school, it wouldn't be such a terrible place. <laughs> if corporate America had this, it wouldn't be such a cutthroat world. There's a way that we can thrive and it doesn't have to just be about the bottom line. Be light. Um, and, and then, you know, he says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Oh, so someone's saying something ugly about someone else and your silence makes you culpable. And he's like, no, there's a way to be light. Come to their defense. Why? Because they're vulnerable? Because they're not there. I'm like, okay, so now we have a way a new way to be human. See, Torah is all about food. It's about possession. It's about neighbors. It's about sexuality. It's about work. It's about family. It's about business. It's about clothing. In fact, the Hebrew word, maybe some of you might be familiar with this, there is no Hebrew word for the word spiritual. Why? Because that would imply that a part of life is unspiritual. Kind of an important thing to think about. Because if it's all spiritual, it's all God's. And you're like, oh, but this is, you know, we've got to erase the secular and the sacred divide and say, it's all spiritual. So how do we live into that new reality? See, it's all your life with God. It's not your Monday through Friday work life. It's not your go home and have your married life and then go out into the world. No, no, no. It's all one life in Christ. That's what he's trying to get at. It's not like, oh, this is me time. This is my time. This is my money versus his money or our money. This is, no, 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 no. These aren't your gifts. This is all your life in Christ. And it's like saying Sundays aren't necessarily any more spiritual than any other day. But what's deeply spiritual is, I think, this community. Our lives together in pursuit of a living faith. Because I can't work any of this out on my own. Now, let's get to it. Let's fast forward mm, a few hundred, a few, few centuries, and we get to the life of Christ. What's going on in the life of Christ? Because you're like, okay, that was a lot of minutia about daily living. That's a lot about like, what God kind of put into uh, the Torah and, and these daily commandments. Well, there was a growing class gap. There was this huge divide within. And so the Herod had, had established kind of this elite class. 80 to 90% were involved with agriculture. And they were being taxed to the point of starvation. Most people were living on subsistence farming. 
just getting by hand to mouth. Every day, I might have earned enough for me and my family. So amazing. Uh, a week ago, I was sitting, John, Pastor Jonathan from Burma had a pastor visiting him. Um, and we were talking about what it was like to be in, in their economy. He says, you know, there's not a lot we can do. We, we, we earn enough to eat for the day. And I'm like, really? And yet they have this profound dependence, this profound vibrancy. They live like the book of Acts. I was like, how did you even afford to get here? He says, the church. I said, the church? He says, yeah, we have 60 house churches. I was like, house church? Well, like, what's a house church? Like, a family? He says, it could be 15 to 20. It could be 30. It could be 75. And you have 60 of them? Mm Mm-hmm. But you can't build a building. No, we built a school because now we have a room to meet in. I was like, and he, and he literally, he pulls out of his pocket and he had some 50s and some 100s and he goes, the people gave me money so my wife and I could come because so many of the people that he was ministering to are all through the United States. So he's visiting, he, he's making house calls because he's still their pastor. I'm like, oh, 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 okay, I, I, I live and trust and believe differently, um, but I'm being humbled right now and convicted. And so Herod had started this kind of this dynasty, creating this elite ruling class at the expense of 80 to 90% of the people. And the city of Jericho was that city, that first city when they crossed into over across the Jordan, it was the first city, and you remember the story about Joshua, and, but that was the first city that they weren't going to conquer. Why? Because that was the jewel of the promised land. It was as if that was their 10%. So you're going to occupy all the rest of the land, but save Jericho. Why? Jericho was this beautiful, ideal, it would be kind of like our Hamptons. And in Jesus' time, all of the rich had their second and their summer homes there. So it's super posh, kind of a resorty town a couple thousand years ago. So you can kind of get the sense over who's hanging out there. And, and so there's this ruling elite class, a lot of financial privilege. And then you have uh, the way uh, to live the life of the Torah. So you have these people who are entrusted with gathering taxes. Uh, and then you had um, people who were over the tax collectors. Uh, And so this is who we have in Zacchaeus. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was um, a ruling tax collector, totally despised, but also really Jewish. Now, we just went through all the stuff that every Jewish person was supposed to know. God hates the gap. There's a way to live and do business, be in community together. And here you have one of our own acting like an idiot, like every man for himself. So he's living not just in violation of Torah, he's getting rich off of his own people, forgotten his identity as the people of God and and God's faithfulness in his life. So here, Jesus comes walking into Jericho, this beautiful resort town with everyone's got their second homes and a lot of money going around. And here's what happens when Jesus stumbles upon him. And, and this is where we kind of know the story, but it says uh, in, in Luke chapter uh, 19, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man there named Zacchaeus, he was a chief 
tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see them, uh, who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. And so he ran ahead and he climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way, and when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he says, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. And he's like, he invites himself over, which was a huge honor and also like shocking. Like, oh, good God. No, not you, Jesus. Don't, don't sign on with those people. They are exploiting us. Jesus, really? And Jesus makes a kind of a big announcement, and he says, today, salvation has come to this house. Why would he say that? There's a double entendre there. But in verse 7, it says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, has, he has gone to the guest of a sinner, be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus, listen to what he does. Zach stood up and he said to the, uh, and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus says, today salvation has come to his house. Why do he say it? Well, number one, Jesus' name literally translates what we would say Joshua, God saves. So he's like, salvation has come to his house. Like, I'm in the house, what up? And then he's like, no, but this guy is now turning once was blind, now he sees. Was lost, now he's found. What he's doing is he's responded to the rules for daily living. He's responded to the guidelines that God wanted to establish to live in this kind of harmony. And what you have in this picture is heaven crashing in to a very hellish existence. And so he... He responds uh, and he says, for the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. So Jesus is calling people to live as part of the kingdom of heaven while on earth. And the poor wouldn't have taken, uh, wouldn't have taken to it as Jesus starts hanging out with the wealthy sinners responsible for making the gap worse. It's like, no, Jesus, I thought you were with us. Don't go with them. You're being enticed. You're being lured by that wealth. And he's like, Oh, just watch this. So the question is, if you're part of the ruling elite, if you're a big landowner and you have lots of crops, are you excited by someone's generosity? Are you excited that one of your people who oversees your tax collectors is now giving money away? No. Generosity kills what has built up your estate. This is not good for business. And so you have this political, economic, and this social revolution, and the whole class system is threatened because it creates what? An even playing field. Wait, Zacchaeus, you're going to mess this up for you. Your choice affects all of us. Don't go there. And he does. Uh, and some would say this is ultimately what got Jesus killed because he loosened the economic grips that was that. So, uh, probably isn't the most fair comparison to think. No one likes a tax collector, but it's different than, like, say, our IRS agents. A, a tax collector would have been someone who was trained in Torah, someone who knew better. 
Someone who said, yes, I'm one of the children of God. Yes, my heritage is that God has delivered us. Yes, my heritage is that God has always been faithful. Except they punted on all of it and said, yeah, that's my faith. But this, this, this is my business life. And this, it's every man for himself. And so he's now made this really upward mobile path. And so Zacchaeus is incredibly despised by his peers and his countrymen for breaking Torah, Leviticus 25. They all knew it. He knew it. And now like, they're like, Jesus, don't go sit at his table. And D Jesus suggests that salvation has come to this house, not because of right doctrine, not even because he recited a prayer, but why? because of a confession and a simple turning. What is it in our salvation that keeps our hearts so sensitive that we can yield to the prompts, to the check in our spirit, to the leading of God and begin to turn? This is what we talk about when we, when we talk about kairos moments. Those moments where you sense God is calling us either to turn away from or turn toward. But in either case, we need to be sensitive to the prompts of God drawing us into the life that he intended. Zacchaeus has a moment. He doesn't pray a prayer. He, he doesn't articulate really good doctrine. What he does is he's like, um, I'm going to come clean. Uh, and, and there's a turning. Now, the turning is what gets really interesting here because when a person confessed to being guilty of something and they chose to make voluntary restoration. Leviticus 5 would say that person who kind of outs themselves has to pay back 20%. Now, if someone gets busted and, and for like exploiting the poor or doing something unethical, um, but doesn't confess, but gets found out, Torah would say they have to pay back 50%. What does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus recognizes how despicable he's been. Taking what is essential from people and, and, and doing it and treating people with such cruelty. The punishment for that was that you were supposed to pay it back fourfold. Zacchaeus outs himself and then he says, I've been, I've been robbing people in the most cruel fashion. So I'm not only outing myself, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. This is coming clean. This is saying, I'm choosing to turn. What I love is that in all of Jesus's life, he never once said, come and worship me. He never once said, think like me, believe like me. He simply said, what? Come, follow me. And the longer we follow Jesus, it's like the longer we stand around the fire, we can feel the warmth. And hopefully it begins to transform our hearts. It begins to create a new normal for how we're used to thinking about business and, and, and sexuality and, and finance and treating coworkers and treating servants or, or, or hired help. Uh, it, it has to do with treating authority and elected leaders. All of a sudden, our Christian worldview, that is, the way we work out our salvation in fear and trembling is recognizing that God is ultimately the source and has provided and been so faithful and it begins to shape the humility and the graciousness in which we're able to treat others. Salvation as transformation.
And he's like, it starts with every day. It starts with the minutia. It starts with who you're working for and who works for you. And this is what he starts. Will you just bow your heads? I want to lead you through just kind of a prayer time as we consider what do we do with salvation as daily and present. And it's this. Let's just pray together. And I want to just ask you a couple of questions. How, how does your salvation, your following Christ, change you? We started out simply by talking about what words are associated with your salvation. We talked about hope, and we talked about freedom. We talked about um, transformation. We talked about restoration. We talked about redemption. Those are all perfect words. But how is your salvation, your fallen Christ, changing you? How does it inform how you spend your weekends? How you pray? How does it inform your view of the poor? How does it inform the way you parent? Offer or ask for forgiveness? Steward your blessing? Hold others in contempt? How does it inform how you might or might not carry a grudge? See, salvation is supposed to be daily present. And there's things that need saving in our life. Yes, our soul needs saving, but you know what else needs saving? Our stuff. We need to be saved from our stuff. We need to rest from consumption. We need to be saved from spending at the mall because it just feels like comfort. It's saved from accumulation. Our pace needs saving. We get tired from our weekends. We're tired after our vacations. What are our priorities? Maybe our desires need salvation. Complaint, expectation, criticism, opinion, all just need saving. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in, in, in again, a really personal way. Um, I pray that you would just convict us of the stuff yet yielded, of the stuff that's yet to be surrendered. I pray that our hearts could grow in freedom. I pray that we would experience a kind of love from you that maybe we never have or a kind of intimacy with you that we didn't know was possible. I pray that our calloused hearts could be made sensitive so that we could yield. And, and Lord, uh, if you need to break our hearts, do that because you're a good God and we're still in your hand whether we have a broken heart or not. So would you just sensitize us to the leading of your spirit that our lives might be yoked with yours to be people of hope and of justice and of mercy to be people of generosity and hospitality and compassion may we be a living witness a light may we be part of your salvation 
Lord, thank you that you don't leave us as orphans. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Help our salvation to be worked out in a way as daily and present. You within arm's reach. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.